difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here again with Genevieve Kosky and Scott Tobias. Our absent co-host Keith Phipps is off making sure his beloved pet pony doesn't eat anything that disagrees with it. So in his place at the pub, we have New York critic Sadant Adlaka. Hi, Sadant. You were feeling uh, not super great for our first podcast as our, our lively in Bruges related banter uh, make, made you feel better or worse at this point. The banter made me feel better, but thinking about in Bruges made me feel a little worse. Mm, that's fair. <laughs> thinking about morality and mortality. Well, we're definitely going to cheer you up with this episode, which is about morality and mortality. <laughs> <laughs> ah, on last week's episode, we talked about Martin McDonough's feature film directorial debut in Bruges, which is a story about two hitmen banished to a Belgian town to await further orders from the violent crime boss they work for. That film came out in 2008. Now, 14 years later, all three men have reunited for The Banshees of Inishirin, a quieter and arguably much darker film about a different splintered friendship. This time around, it's the early 1920s, and the Irish Civil War is going on somewhere in the background, felt only through distant shots and explosions. The action takes place on a distant rural Irish island, where a violinist named Colm, played by Brendan Gleeson, has decided that he's done with his best friend Padraig, played by Colin Farrell. The reason why is very simple, but it takes most of the movie to unpack it and to get just about everybody on the island involved, particularly Patrick's sister Siobhan, played by Carrie Condon, and local boy Dominic, a lustful dim bulb played by Barry Keegan. Much like in Bruges, Banshee's Vinishirin unfolds with a series of surprise reveals, but they're much smaller and milder. Again, it focuses on death and mortality and guilt, on a man experiencing big emotions without being able to fully vocalize them, and another man who's impatient with watching him flail his way through life. But where In Bruges feels like a punk song stretched out into a play, Banshees feels more like a mournful Irish ballad, the kind of song that takes 20 verses to spell out some tragic deaths and then explain what came after. We'll get into that after the break. Colin Sonny Larry. In June, he used to be the best of friends. We're still the best of friends. No, you're not. Who says we're not? Sit somewhere else. Now, if I've done something to you, just tell me what I've done to you. Well, you didn't do anything to me. I just don't like you no more. You liked me yesterday. Why does he not want to be friends with you no more? Why is he 12? What the hell's going on with you, me feckin' brother? He's dull, Siobhan. But he's always been done. The other night, two hours, you spent talking to me about the things you found in your little donkey shite that day. Well, it wasn't me little donkey shite. It was me pony shite, which shows how much you were listening. If you don't stop talking to me... Colin! And if you don't stop bothering me, I have a set of shears at home. And each time you bother me from this day on, I'll take those shears and I'll take one of my fingers off with them and I'll give that finger to you until I have no fingers left. Does this make things clearer to you? Not really, no. Starting from now. But shush like, Polly. You know, shush like. Yeah, I'd shush like. 
So, Sadan, I'm I'm definitely going to throw to you for first take on Banshees sure. of Inisherin. <laughs> this one, this one, so much more cheerful. It's only about mortality and morality and self mutilation and the the <laughs> oncoming weight of of death and destruction and the attempt to light a small fire of art in the wake of the inevitable. How did this film treat you? Well, I was delighted by this movie. Uh, I was delighted because it took me back to watching In Bruges for the first time. But of course, you know, different things happen in this movie, not just literally in the narrative, but with the ideas that it deals with. Because In Bruges deals with the idea of death and mortality as this sort of confining thing. You know, if, if it's a movie that does indeed take place in purgatory, so to speak, it makes it feel very claustrophobic. Whereas, you know, this fictitious island of Inisharan is this wide open space with all these possibilities. And not all the possibilities are happy. You have this war breaking out just on the horizon. So if you look in a certain direction out into the distance, the future may not be entirely bright. But at the same time, it's a movie whose imagination, I think, takes it to a lot of different places when it comes to thinking about death and how to deal with it. Because in In Bruges, death is always up close. For a character like Ray, it is something he you know, sees immediately. And both Ray and Ken in Bruges, you know, deal with death on a daily basis. Whereas Callum and Parekh, for them, the idea of death is something more abstract and more far away. And which is why I think Callum behaves the way he does, because it isn't something he can put his finger on entirely. No pun intended. Oh, <laughs> rough. Yeah, it seems like he's very much struggling with the concept, but it also seems like through some internal struggle, he's gotten more of a handle on it than Patrick has. Patrick, it just really strikes me, you know, even before we get into connections, it's I think it's hard to avoid watching these two films, thinking about how much they're playing very different takes on the same characters. You know, the the shallow, you know, caught up, a very slightly narcissistic, kind of caught up in his own world uh, fellow who doesn't look too much further than his nose and is pretty content with that most of the time. And the older kind of fatherly intellectual who spends a lot of time thinking and has a lot on his mind. Like it's the dynamic is the same here. But I, I don't know, I feel like I have more of a sympathy here for Colm, who is has figured something like fairly profound and sad out for himself and is trying in the way that he can to do something about it. Although where that leads him, I just don't understand as anything other than a dark comic beat. You know, it's a, an, an exaggerated, heightened kind of beat. I suppose you could say some of that about the decisions that he makes in particular in in Bruges, but it just seems so much more unlikely in the strange in Banshees. Uh, Genevieve Scott, how did you feel about this movie? I really liked it a lot. I mean, it's a beautiful film. It, it does. I will try not to, to talk too much about in, in Bruges, but uh, until we tell connections, but it's hard to avoid. It feels like an older person's film. It feels, uh, you know, it feels like a, a film that is made by the person who did it in Bruges, but has, uh, he's gotten older and has a different perspective on things. But there are, you know, a lot of rhymes there. The setting is just so exceptional. It's so beautiful and distinctive, and it gives you this 
incredible perspective on the mainland. It gives you an incredible perspective on, on life. I mean, that. I mean, you talk about possibilities. I mean, there really aren't that many in this in this world. I mean, what what they don't, what do they have to do? I mean, I think I think Colm has finally got got to a place in his life where he's like, wait a minute, I've got to extract something from the rest of my existence beyond you know empty banter with the you know <laughs> with the dumbest guy in town or you know i mean like that's not what i i need to do to have some kind of legacy i need to make, make some meaningful contributions something that that means something that's interesting and shaban has that too that just like i of not being content where with where where she is of, of being able to i the mainland you know and that's that's not uh padraig he, he can he can kind of he, he can do the status quo but it's, it's it fascinates i'm just so fascinated by that relationship still the the, the pull that the two of the, the, them have together even apart um the 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 interesting moments of compassion and kindness that get exchanged between them when they're not even speaking to each other i'm thinking of the moment when uh Pedri gets uh knocked out and colm kind of picks picks him up and so they sort of quietly head back toward home it's got all that stuff and then it's just got all these wonderful side characters that old woman i don't know <laughs> it feels like she's taken from some she must be some literary reference that i'm probably not getting maybe maybe you all can fill it in but but just as a character so funny uh, every time it cut the camera cuts away to her and yet also some, there's something just so sinister and and i mean i think she's a witch figure basically think, yeah. yeah yeah i think she might be a banshee Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> sort of a harbinger of death yeah literal in in this case yeah and if she <laughs> if she isn't literally it's possible that she's sort of trying to take on that that mantle for herself you know mm-hmm. i i get a certain sense of self awareness from her like she knows how other people take her and i think she likes it i think she likes being relevant which kind of makes yeah. her an interesting parallel for the the shopkeeper who's the town gossip who is actively <laughs> angry with people who don't share gossip like useful and interesting gossip with her like it's an offense to her if they're not coming to deliver uh, gossip like she's a type and uh, the the old lady harbinger of death is a type, but I get the feeling with the old lady that it, there's just there's just kind of a people pay more attention to me when I'm uh, predicting dire and dark futures, and uh, I, I think she delights in that. I also think she's interesting in relation to Colm because she's I think the only person we meet in this film who is older than him or closer to death, if you will, you know, and I guess just to backtrack to, you know, my, my reactions to, to this, this was a film that like, it won me over, but I was resistant to it, or I was resistant to its characters, particularly Colm for the first part of it. It, it was a beautiful film to experience right from the jump. Like I, I never didn't enjoy watching it, but I found myself really struggling with the character of Colm and like his, I guess, motivations. This is a later scene. And by the time we got to this scene, I was like getting more into what this film was putting down in terms of these two characters. But the, that confrontation in the bar where Patrick is like, you're, you're not nice, you know? And, and then Colm is talking about how, yes, but I want to leave a legacy. I want, you know, you people, nice people aren't remembered. And like, I, don't really vibe with that stance. Like I, I, I'm kind of of the opinion that like what you do here in this moment is more important than what you leave behind. And I think Patrick is kind of representative of that. So I feel like I'm kind of more naturally sympathetic to him as a character from the jump. And that said, 
once this film kicks into like its its third act with poor Jenny and Patrick kind of uh, starts asserting himself and the this like civil war between them you know uh, hits the next level the film won me over you know and I, I I love the way this movie ends I love the final shot of it but I did really feel like I felt that tension between them. I felt that frustration with Colm so much to the extent that like I felt myself being resistant to this movie for its first act, um, especially once the, the fingers start flying, <laughs> which <laughs> is just like such uh-huh. irrational behavior. It's just, it, it, I'm a very rational person. So it's just uh, very difficult for me to, you know, see past that to what is actually being said about these characters and their concerns and the themes of the film. Cause I just wanted to like, like reach through the screen and shake him a little. But I mean, just, I, he can't get over Pat- Patrick's reaction to that. It's just so fun. Like he just cannot, <laughs> like he, he needs to have multiple figures thrown at his doorstep <laughs> in order to get the idea and really does it it doesn't register <laughs> register for him at all i mean i i mean i you know this film does have that great comic kick to it which is mcdonough's style i mean there's so there, there's so many moments from this film that make me look back and, and and sort of smile even though you know this does feel like a pretty dark film overall or a philly full of you know i mean a, a deeper darker film i suppose um maybe even in, in bruges though though uh again i don't want to bring that one in too much i just i find the idea of sympathizing less with Colm pretty fascinating because you know for me this is almost a movie about consent and like i don't mean that literally in the sense that I believe McDonough thinks of it as like a metaphor for people pushing the boundaries of of other people's, you know, sexual borders. It's just Colm says very clearly what he wants and why. And like establishing more and more heavy he doesn't threats say why. around it. He doesn't say why he for doesn't a long say why time. At first. But he says what he wants. And, and you know, the, the earliest stages where it's just, I've made a unilateral decision about your about your friendship with me. Like, yes, that's very hard to sympathize with. But it actually doesn't take that long for him to come out and say, like, look, this is why this is the reason. And Patrick just won't hear it over and over and over. And like, even once he sees the consequences, once he understands that he's serious about it, he can't let it go and he can't accept the boundary. And I, like, I don't know. I Maybe I'm just too sensitive about what other people think about me, but I think somebody that I'd known for a long time saying, look, I don't want to be your friend anymore and here's the reason for me would be so devastating. It would not occur to me to keep going and talking to them over and over and over. And I guess that is because I am not a dim bulb slash not in a dark comedy where it's important that that relationship continue. But like I, I found Patrick's behavior so much more difficult to understand than, than Calm's. I guess I, I bristle at the film's sort of assumption that him being nice is him being dim or like the conflation of those two things I don't know. I feel like friendship is something that, especially friendships between adults, especially friendship between older adults, is something that needs to be worked at and is something that needs to be pushed. And I feel like I was reading Patrick as coming from a place of like not wanting to let his friend back away from a friendship that is 
I don't buy Colm's reasoning for backing away from the friendship. I guess I, I, I think he can do both. <laughs> I think it's very neat for a movie, the idea that like you can't be friends with someone and make a legacy, you know, work on your music, although cutting off your fingers is <laughs> not really conducive to that either. I don't know. I I think it's okay to push friendships on people who maybe need them and are unwilling to see that or accept that at first blush. I think in the abstract, that's an okay thing to say. In the specific where pushing a friendship means talking to somebody for two hours about what you found in your your pony's poop, <laughs> uh, at that point, that's that's not a friendship. That's I demand to have an ear for whatever it is that I want to say. I demand to have somebody even if they're getting nothing out of this, like tolerate me. And having just said, I don't don't literally mean it's a movie about consent. I might start walking that back when you bring up the whole, but I'm a nice guy. Like, is there anything more about consent than, but I'm a nice guy. So I should be able to go on like pushing myself on this person who doesn't want me. Why would, why do you want to spend so much time with somebody who doesn't want you present? Like, where do you fall on this? Do you, do you have a sympathy for either of them over the other? Do you think the movie wants us to? Does it matter? I have to admit, I'm a bit on both sides of it because I've kind of been both people in that scenario mm. where I've been eager to find some kind of closure for why something may have fallen apart, you know, something that doesn't fully make sense to me. And until it makes sense to me, I'm going to keep searching for reasons and rationalizations. So I've been on Parak's side of it. And I've also been on Callum's side of it in that, you know, sometimes you're going to find people who are just, you don't feel are worth your time and energy. And it sounds completely cruel. And I haven't done something like this to anyone. But I do sympathize with the impulse of, you know, because you have one of two options. You can either say, well, let me, you know, sit down and explain point by point why I would like to sever this relationship, which uh, sounds like as much of a headache mm -hmm. for Callum as actually engaging in the relationship itself. So I kind of get why he does what he does, even though it sucks for doing it. But yeah, since we're brought into this story from Barak's point of view as someone who does not have these answers and explanations, I, I do get it. I get the horror of, you know, having to live in this in between space without an answer to something that you think should have a simple answer. Like, just tell me what I did. You know, just tell me what I did wrong so I can move on with my life. Because the answer that you just don't feel like talking to me anymore, the answer that you've just 180'd overnight does not make sense to me. It does feel cruel to say we're just not friends anymore, no explanation. But I do think he recognizes that the explanation is just going to lead to arguments about it. And it does. You know, the coming out and saying here's why just leads to endless litigation and resistance and a lot more of the exact thing that he was trying to uh, escape. At the same time, this is it's a fantasy story. I, I think the fact that Calm does, in fact, start cutting off his fingers and expressly feels no pain puts this very much in the realm of metaphor, much more than like actual active reality of any sort. How does that change the story for y'all? I think it makes Callum self-destructive and not just in the literal sense that he is doing damage to his body, but 
you know, he he's a musician, he's an artist, he's someone who claims that, you know, with the limited time he has left, he wants to, you know, be remembered and leave something behind. And that something for him is music. But using Parak as an excuse to cut off his fingers, it's very much him getting in his own way, which makes me wonder, is, you know, his desire to create music, does that really lie at the heart of what he's mm-hmm. going through? Is it really the answer he's looking for if he's also willing to so casually and brutally toss it aside and stop himself from doing the one thing he claims he was put on this earth to do? So I think the act of severing his fingers, severing the very things that can help him be remembered, I think that just makes him a much more a self-sabotaging person because he really doesn't have the answers he claims to have. And I think at the end of it, it's him just finding a way to blame Parag for his own shortcomings or misfortunes or what have you. I mean, it's an absolutist solution. And, and like to, to take it back to the friendship, like there is another way to do this, to sort of like do the fade away, the friendship fade away, you know, but but he doesn't do that. You know, he not just are we not friends, we are not speaking, you know, whereas there are many other people in this town acquaintances that he does speak to, you know, so there is a like a, a real harsh line being drawn there. And the cutting off of the fingers is another like very harsh line. And I feel like it's a direct connection to the war that's happening just over the horizon that we don't see because war also deals in absolutes, you know, violently so. And there isn't necessarily room for gray areas of compromise and morality that are maybe necessary in in interpersonal relationships. I think that the war from their perspective may be similar to their relationship from our perspective, which is that it's inexplicable, (laughs) you know, that this behavior is this behavior that from afar can't be comprehended. It seems outrageous. It seems ridiculous. Obviously, uh, you know, we spent enough time on Inishirin with these characters to get a little bit more of an idea of why this war is happening uh, between these characters. But I think it starts from a place of being kind of mysterious and inexplicable. I mean, it's just such a fascinating place to start a movie to, to, for the relationship, for it not to be a explicit breakup, for it to, to, and it, for it to be drawn in these terms, which are so severe from these two guys who would routinely drink together. That was just, that's part of their day um, to all of that ending. And I think, it, I think we can see that it arises from some sort of, powerful existential crisis that Colm is having about just like, what, what am I doing? Like, what have I done? Like, where am I in my life? And uh, what is my routine? Uh, what am I getting out of it? What these conversations with a uh, dim and curious man who is pleasant, who's nice, but who's who, who offers no kind of spiritual intellectual nourishment at all in his conversation. There's a desire for a break from that before it's too late. One thing I'm curious about their relationship, which the film doesn't tell us as it's it's, uh, prerogative, but is like what Colm brought to these conversations and and friendships. Like, was he attempting to, you know, discuss philosophy and music or was he just sitting there and letting Patrick blather at him? You know, like there is, it kind of feels to me that he is maybe seeking something that maybe doesn't exist on Inishirin. And 
I mean, I, I guess we, that's kind of made clear when we have the the musician coming from from the over from the mainland to 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 work with him. You know, like he doesn't necessarily have anyone on the island that that gives him what he's looking for. But I guess like is Colm putting these ideas out there too, or is he just waiting for someone else to give him the intellectual nourishment and stimulation he craves? We don't know. But that is another sort of element of this this relationship that, you know, is curious to me. He seems to be maybe looking for something that doesn't exist on an Asheron, but when he is alone, he brings it there himself. Like we we see him sitting alone and thinking in his house or just sitting alone with his dog. Uh, he seems to be okay with his own company and his own thoughts, which he's trying to lead towards, you know, creation. And and he is actively writing songs, you know, putting new things into the world. It seems to me that one of the big things about this movie is just, it's such a small setting. Like this couldn't, this, this story couldn't happen in Dublin because... Patrick might still long for this company, but he would have other options. You know, there would be other bars that he could go to. There would be other people that he could hang out with. And in this case, he already knows everybody there. Like, he knows that there's nobody on the island that can give him the kind of relationship, the kind of closeness or friendship that he thought that he had uh, with this old friend of his. So the sense of isolation here uh, seems very important. And the sense of there not necessarily being the resources that everybody wants, you know, in in the amounts that everybody wants present just seems baked into the setting for me. I mean, it's incredible to me just how how the film emphasizes how there's just nothing to do. I mean, what are you going to do on this island? What can you do to pass the time? What can you do as uh, in terms of you know, a career or a job, like what, what do you actually do in this space? You know, for somebody like who's fairly simple, like Patrick, he was content with what, 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 what the status quo was. He's not, he's, he is incurious. He has this, he has this routine. The routine makes him perfectly happy, but he, he ends up being surrounded by a lot of people who are, who end up being quite restless. And, it, and it's something that's hard for him to comprehend, but is very real for everybody else. And including his sister, uh, who's also quite a good character. Well, talking about his sister strikes me as a really good jump into connections because the sister character here strikes me as a, a very interesting mirror of the the love interest in, in Bruges. The setting in both of these films, um, we we touched on it with uh, Banshees, we touched on it with In Bruges, but kind of bringing them into contrast with each other is fairly important. And then there's just so many other things that we could say about the surrounding characters, around the way the story is structured, around uh, just all of the things that these films have in common, I think we should probably just jump directly from here into Connections. We'll be right back with that. What are you doing home? Brother, what are you doing home? I knocked on Colm Sonny Larry, who's just sitting there. Sitting there doing what? Sitting there doing nothing. Smoking. Was he asleep? He was smoking, Siobhan. How do you smoke in your sleep, like? Have you been rowing? We haven't been rowing. I don't think we've been rowing. Have we been rowing? 
it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. Uh, we'll get to those female characters. We'll we'll get to some other things. But I, I actually wanted to start off with something Sadat brought up, which is just how these two films kind of rhyme, like, stylistically and, and structurally. Let's Let's start with that, with kind of the big picture. Yeah, so I think all of Martin McDonough's four films are very dialogue-based. But when it comes specifically to In Bruges and Banshees of Inner Sharon, I think there's something very specific about the rhythm in which he's working. And I wonder if it has something to do with the fact that he's writing specifically for Irish accents, something with which he's familiar, as opposed to you know the American settings of his other two films. And I wonder if that lends itself to a sense of comfort with how the lines bounce off each other constantly, whether it's something profound and weighty and meaningful, or it's just a repetitive exchange between two characters in a bar. It always feels like there's something happening, always something going on between the layers of the dialogue, whether it's people expressing their dismay or concern or confusion or shock at the unfolding scenario between these two friends, or it's the friends themselves, you know, letting their hearts out about, you know, why they're doing the things they're doing. And I think when you really break down McDonough's style in these two films, you know, visually, it's simple in the sense that his priority is capturing these dialogue exchanges. But it's so complicated, because he makes his stagey dialogue work in a medium that is so fundamentally different from the stage. Because the stage, you're essentially dealing with one angle and no cuts, to put it purely in cinematic terms. Whereas with something like In Bruges, you're dealing with a film that, you know, constantly cuts back and forth between characters. With Banshees, you're dealing with a film that, even though it's it has a wider staging, it has wider shots that capture characters all in the same frame, the camera is constantly moving between them. It's either changing what it's looking at or it's racking focus between characters. And it becomes a very cinematic extrapolation of these simple dialogue scenes. It's telling you where the rhythm is, where to focus. And that's where so much of his story and its impact is created. I wonder if that's just a an expression of enjoying control in a way that, you know, he can't control on the stage where people are looking. He can certainly encourage it through dialogue, but being able to focus people's eyes is a form of power he wouldn't have elsewhere. I mm. the, the rhythmic thing that I see connecting these two films myself is just how often he pulls back to show you the the setting. Like Banshee's opens, if I recall correctly, with just shots of, of fields on the the island of Sharon, which is a fictional island, an amalgam of uh, two actual Irish islands. But it focuses on the setting before anything else. It, it focuses on this is a beautiful place. And you get much the same with In Bruges in those opening shots of here are our two characters experiencing this place. I, I think in both of these stories, a lot of the story is in this kind of rhythmic dialogue happens, but he wants you to be aware at all times that it's happening in this much larger space that nobody's really engaging with when they're in the middle of these like tight little reflexive, reflective dialogues where 
people are so caught up in each other that they're they're not taking in their surroundings. And only one of the two characters in the main face-off is capable of stepping back with the audience to look around himself. The quality of those surroundings, though, is is a, a point of contrast, but that I think like plays to what we're talking about in a similar way, because like in Bruges, like it's a much more populated setting. There's a lot more going on around them in almost every shot. You know, there's a lot of background, whatnot happening. There's a whole movie being shot in, in, in the background, you know, whereas uh, Banshees of Inisher and like there are other people in this film besides the two of them, but everyone feels kind of very small within this big, vast vista and then a very cramped pub like, occasionally, you know. So both films are, you know, very focused on these dialogue moments, but just like the space that they're happening in just has a real effect on the energy of the film. Like in Bruges, we, we talked about sort of its punk energy. It feel, it has a much more energetic feel just because there's a lot more happening around the margins. Whereas Banshees, you're just really focused on this one friendship and how isolated it is. And that isolation is a big part of this this relationship and you know what's informing it so how they are positioned in the frame and what's happening on the margins of the frame i think kind of informs the the energy of the the character relationships well in, in a sharon strikes you as both large and small mm-hmm. all at the same time of being this uh place of of this big and unoccupied and but at the same time so few people live there Everybody has the same routine. There's a pub. There's a church. People walk. You know, there, there's a little bit of is the area with their with there's a general store. I mean, everything. There's just it's incredibly small, but also imposingly large. I mean, it feels like a a, a very a, almost kind of a psychic space at, at times uh, for people to kind of. It's a reflective space too for people. And the other thing too is like uh, you know these are both places. Bruges and in Sharon that are picturesque, that are places that that you would want to visit as a tourist. They're beautiful spaces that, for the characters, have become <laughs> not so much, and uh, not so much that they they take on a different meaning within the context of the movie itself, and and uh, in this place that seems so classically Irish, this island that is that is uh, windswept and by the ocean, and it's gorgeous. Those cliffs. Oh man, has cl- has dramatic cliffs. I mean, just incredible. Just you know, in the green greenery, and it's just. I mean, it looks you know, even the pub has that kind of that classic look to it. You know, it, it feels like a kind of a place you would want to visit as a tourist, but to actually, you know, within the context of the film, become something else. And 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 that that is certainly true of in, in Bruges as well. And in the way characters kind of relate to the, that environment, I think I think there's a sense that. The, you know that status quo that that is fine with Padraig is not ends up not being fine for Colm or, or for Shaban or for people who want more from their lives than this space is is able to give them. Bringing in Shaban might be a good opportunity to kind of talk about the main women in these two films and how different their roles are. Chloe in Imbruge, um, played by Clemence Posey, strikes me honestly as a 
a less mature man's version of a of, of a love interest here. You know, she has very little definition of her own. She mostly kind of exists as something for Ray to chase, something to keep him interested in, and focused and something to cause conflict. There's not a whole lot to her. And the fact that we don't really ever understand her relationship with Eric, the guy who she has a, a running scam with where she picks up tourists and then he bursts in with a gun and mugs them. She switches sides and ends up with Ray and we don't really know why or what she sees in him. But then we have Siobhan, which, you know, she is she's not here as a love interest. She's not here as a prize. She's kind of here as a parallel. She's here to give us kind of a a small perspective into both Patrick and Colm and where they're coming from and, and what they feel. But she's got her own arc. She's got her own story. She's got her own direction that she's going into. And in that, she seems much more like Frances McDormand's character in in Three Billboards to me. You know, she's a much more fully realized character and I think a much more interesting one. Siobhan actually reminds me more of a of a different female character in Imbruge who has an even smaller part, even less developed, but is more memorable to me uh, is Marie, the uh, not the receptionist, the co-owner of the hotel with, with her husband, who I think only has like two or three scenes. But in every single one, I feel like she is just a bastion of practicality and like just pushing back against these ridiculous men being ridiculous. <laughs> and like, that's what I... I loved Siobhan as a character. Like, I, if, if Siobhan wasn't in Banshees of Inisherin, I think I would have liked it so much less just because she serves as a corrective to both men's fairly foolish behavior. And as you say, Tasha, she's like sort of parallel. Like, she shows an actual kind of rational solution to the existential crisis that Colm is dealing with. And she shows a compassion and niceness that Patrick has, but is not able to express in an interesting way. And, and she is, you know, she's well read. So just as a counterpoint to these two men, I feel like Siobhan is essential. And Marie is maybe not quite as essential to in Bruges. But every time she is in a scene, particularly like at the end with uh, Harry and Ray's like shootout in the, ho- in, in the hotel, <laughs> like, I, I feel again, that just sort of grounded, rational feminine energy, yeah. undercutting the absurdity yeah, this of hap- this. Scene. Why is this even yeah. necessary? <laughs> yes. what, do you, what is going on? Why do you have to do this? Why are you two behaving like such children? Exactly. And with that specific thing in in Bruges, it's about exposing these codes of honor that these guys are following as being a little ridiculous too. I mean, they, they, I mean, they they do have these lines that they've they've drawn, but they there's something kind of uh, absurdly inflexible about it. There's no ability to kind of, as you say, maybe sort of rationalize things a little bit better and, and see things more clearly and come to kind of conclusions that are not as extreme as, you know, shooting each other. Or cutting off your fingers. Yeah. Or setting a house on fire. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think that's war. I mean, that isn't that kind of, that's, you know, I mean, I, I guess there's a metaphor for war, the way war works. It is that kind of escalation of just kind of like slipping into this, these tensions that are kind of hard to locate. And then once things get rolling, you find yourself doing things that are just beyond imagination of cutting off your fingers and hurling them at 
your enemy and or whatever or, or setting a guy's house on fire it just that's like the way kind of war sometimes works it just you just kind of like back into it well and also like the way that banshees ends like the war never really like there's not really peace you know it just like kind of the the hostilities stop or pause but like because Colm says, like, I guess we're even now, or, you know, I guess we're, we're, we're fine now. And Patrick's like, no, you know, <laughs> but but, <laughs> but I'm glad your dog's okay. And, like, that's kind of how it is with war. Like, you know, s- someone retreats, but it's not like everything's okay now. Yeah. Yeah, just you're just going to have tension that flares up and then down and up again. Yeah, right. It's not, nothing's actually resolved. Well, I mean, it's another uh, ambiguous ending or another choose your own ending where you're kind of offered this could go on forever or this could end with them killing each other. Or this could end with him. him. It doesn't seem very likely that, that Patrick's going to drop it. He he says outright uh, that he's not. Once again, do you think that this is a, a very simple and obvious ending, uh, <laughs> Scott Tobias, that where we, we know exactly what happens? You know, it, it, things are... Have reached a stopping point, but not or an impasse or something, but not things aren't over. Like these are tensions that are that exist, and and uh, things are not resolved exactly, and uh, they will continue to fight. Will continue to be at odds. It's to be continued. I mean, that reminds me of another connection that I actually was going to bring up when Scott was talking about the quote unquote fairy tale settings of of both of these films, because both of these settings are also a metaphorical purgatory for these characters. We already kind of got into uh, in Bruges uh, in in that respect in in what is for Ray. And uh, Inishirin is, it's more explicitly that for Colm, but I think for all of these characters, it, you know, sort of functions is that in between space, n- n- neither here nor there. Again, Siobhan is is the one who escapes, who makes a decision, who, it's not that she's atoning for her sins, but she t- she takes action in a way that others in the film aren't necessarily willing to do. And I think it's interesting that in both films, this sort of purgatory metaphor materializes as just a sense of boredom, <laughs> you know, for, for, <laughs> for, for these characters. And there, there's, there's nothing to do but dwell on on yourself, basically, on, on, on your problems. And for Ray, that's, that, that makes him extremely itchy because he does have a lot to dwell on. He has a lot of guilt that he is trying not, not to face, a, a major sin that he is trying not to think about atoning for. And with Colm, you know, it's, it's death. It's, mor- it's mortality that he's facing and not necessarily in a, a healthy <laughs> way. So it's not necessarily that he's bored but he doesn't have have the stimulation that he that he's looking for the same way that Ray doesn't have the stimulation he's looking for in in Bruges uh, with the the canals and, and the museums. But uh, you know, I guess he finds it with the the cocaine and the the women eventually. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that's a very significant thing about both Colin Farrow characters is that they're both looking for somebody else to provide the entertainment that they need. They they're both looking for somebody else to distract them. And, and kind of give to them in order to take them out of themselves, whether he's like looking to have sex with Chloe or looking for Colm to be his receptor uh, for his his endless stories about pony shite. 
he thinks it's other people's obligation to keep him entertained. And I, I, in both cases, I think that makes him kind of an irritating character. You know, just a, a character who is full of is full of and focused on his needs and his wants and his like bottomless hunger for entertainment. Whereas in both cases, we've got Brendan Gleeson as the man who seems like he'd be happier if he was alone. If he was alone with his thoughts, if he was alone with the space, if he was alone with the world that he's in. It's just a dynamic that I see stretching throughout both of the movies and really affecting my, at least, sympathies. There's just that feeling of if there was a Ray or a Patrick in my life who just w- like wouldn't go away and let me think for five minutes, especially when I'd asked for it, he'd drive me nuts. I don't see Patrick as mm. looking for entertainment so much as companionship. Like, yeah. you know, especially with the whole like wa- always wanting to have the animals in the house thing, you know, and his and obviously his, <laughs> his sister, like, like he's just someone who can't be alone. And I think this film is sort of about him, like his thing that he has to learn is to be alone because he lives in a space and he lives in a place where being alone like kind of comes with the territory and that is maybe a fear that he is facing in this film uh, and that is informing his reaction to to Colm but I don't think it's as a base as him looking for entertainment yeah, well, he doesn't even re- he doesn't even read, you know. It's like, yeah, he, he, he's, he's the guy. He's the guy on the airplane who just like looks straight into the back of the chair the whole flight. You know what I mean? Like, no, that's, that's no, no. He's he's the guy on the airplane who didn't bring anything to read, can't read, can't settle down with the music, and so turns to you and starts a conversation. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, oh, right. which okay, is yeah. a, a really thinly okay. veiled. Yeah, Colm uh, is the yeah. guy staring at the back of the seat. <laughs> yeah, he's it, it's just like it's like a really thinly veiled excuse to like launch into a monologue. He's he's the guy. Who's cursing for not bringing headphones or something yeah i i don't know like i I mean i feel like any gaps in terms of sympathy for for pedrag or or for um ray are made up for by colin farrell as a actor oh that's (laughs) very true he's just such a extraordinarily charismatic and funny yeah and a performer and somebody who just who can really win your sympathies over quite easily i think i think he does in both films there's a simplicity to his characters in both films, a childlike nature that Farrell plays on, and just a just a, a comic personality. I mean, both of these characters are so funny and are such the drivers of the comedy that in both films that I don't know, you can't help but to like them, to like both of those guys. Keeping that in mind, I kind of want to bring up a connection that I see as just like stretching back to the earliest days of comedy. You know, the the fat guy, skinny guy dynamic, your <laughs> your Abbott and Costello, like Laurel and Hardy kind of classic dynamic between, you know, the the smarter, more grounded guy and the skinny, edgy troublemaker um, who's probably restless and maybe a little dim. Like this is just a very classic pairing. And it's it's very classically executed here in a, a very familiar way. Sedan, I'm I'm sort of curious, like whether you you, you kind of talked about how this taps into stage traditions and Irish traditions. Do you also see it as uh, tapping into comic conventions? I didn't until you mentioned it, but now that you go back through all the cinematic history, uh, this you know history of the moving image and the way it has constantly come back to this form of, you know, fat guy, skinny guy, uh, someone more grounded, someone more restless. Uh, I think it does speak to how well McDonough manages to establish this sense of opposite between Hmm. Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell in both films. 
And that's another reason I was so glad to see them all back together in Banshees, because they do have that dynamic, the same one from In Bruges that carries over here, with Colin Farrell as, you know, a sort of dim-witted but restless guy, and Gleason as someone who, you know, sees himself as much more cultured and much more centered. You know, he is the center of gravity around which Colin Farrell is constantly orbiting. Mm. And I, I think there's something wonderful about the way that dynamic manifests on screen. Because, like I said in the previous episode, not very many Hollywood directors uh, are able to tap into that element of Colin Farrell. He's only done a handful of movies where, you know, he's played anything resembling comedic, uh, the ones that come to mind, at least as far as Hollywood studio comedies go, or Hollywood studio movies go, are Horrible Bosses and The Batman, and he's wearing fat suits in both of them. <laughs> um, so this is just sort of tapping into, you know, his innate, unencumbered, energetic dumbness. <laughs> I find it interesting that you point out that, you know, McDonough is tapping into a sense of opposites with, with both of these pairings, but they're like, they're opposite in very different ways. Like, Colm is a very different character from Ken. He's, he's just, he's gruffer. He's more unfriendly. <laughs> but he does, have, as, you, as you point out, this sort of, a you know, interest in, in culture that uh, his, his, his counterpart does not. So there's like definitely elements connecting them, but they are in no way playing the same characters in these films. But I think what strikes me about the dynamic less than the physical aspect of it is sort of the paternal nature, the, the intergenerational, I guess, na nature of it. Like, Gleason and Farrell seem much farther apart in age in Inishirin than, than they do in Imbruge, but Ken does seem older than, uh, than Ray still. But in both cases, it does create this feeling of Farrell's character is sort of just seeking approval, seeking something from Gleason's character, and not really getting it for whatever reason. And sort of the the frustration of that is where a lot of the comedy comes from as well. Yeah. So, you know, as we've discussed, Banshees of Inisherin is so much about Callum facing down the idea of death, but it makes me wonder how much of that is true for Parrick as well, because if we, you know, as we've been doing, we compare the two dynamics and the sort of paternal quality that Brendan Gleeson has, then doesn't Banshees of Inisherin become about someone trying to find out why he's being rejected by a father figure? And that just seems to make it all the more tragic. And, and in a way, all that much more about being able to understand death, because... There's this quote that's gone around so much that I think the original author has probably been forgotten. Your father is the last person standing between you and God. And I I wonder how much that holds true for Parak as well, because he has this, you know, person in whom he seems to take simple comfort in the form of Callum. You know, someone who he can talk to about these little mundanities and uh, you know, we, we never really see any of those friendly conversations play out because mm. we enter the story once that's all in the past. But I wonder how much of that for him was just a sense of comfort, a sense of, you know, a way of dealing with the mundanities of everyday life and not having to think about what lies beyond the boundaries of Inisharan and what lies on the other side of the water, the the brewing war and conflict. 
And so I wonder how much of it, you know, is about Barak not wanting to deal with the idea of mortality as well. That just ties so well into what you said earlier about the uh, the Abraham myth. I mean, if, if your father is the last person standing in between you and God, and Harry is the God figure in Imbruge, like, yeah, uh, Ken is directly standing in between the two of them, and at the point where he can't anymore, and uh, Ray does have to face his own mortality, that's where the film gets really serious. And it just seems like in Banshees, Colm has come to terms with mortality. He's come to terms with his own eventual and possibly incipient uh, death, and he's trying to deal with it. But I, I, I think you, I think you're exactly right here. I think Patrick doesn't know how to deal with the fact that this man is no longer keeping him, not only not keeping him from thinking about these things, but inviting and even forcing him to think about these things, which he considers, you know, unpleasant and unnecessary. The very end of In Bruges, after Ray gets shot and uh, is struggling on the ground and he's crawling quite deliberately toward Jimmy and he's trying quite desperately to prevent Harry from killing himself in that moment. Because uh, he sees, he sees what he sees, like that sense of confusion. Is, is it really just about, you know, does it really tie into his own feeling that he would like to be absolved uh, in a way of of having accidentally shot a a child that he wants that he he wants to also spare Harry this 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 same fate because I mean, he certainly doesn't have any reason to feel a, a tremendous amount of anything toward good feelings at all towards towards Harry. I am not going to answer that question. I am instead going to point out the parallel in Banshees of Sharon when the cop is kicking the crap out of Padrick uh, over on the other side of the island and Colm steps in and intervenes and yeah, uh, knocks yeah. the guy down. You, you have a, the yeah. same dynamic there of he doesn't want to deal with uh, Padrick. He's made it clear. He could easily just stand by and, and watch it happen, but he sees somebody being harmed much as ray sees somebody about to harm himself and he just immediately steps in uh code is that is that the same thing or is it different i think it's also maybe a little bit of learned behavior from ken who who stepped in to stop ray from doing the same thing and ended up dying uh for it so i think maybe it's a little bit of just sort of echo of that relationship going forward and I think in both cases, makes me wonder, is absolution we find something specifically in other people? That is a big thought to end up on. And I suppose it, it ties into, you know, do we learn our morality from other people? Do we get our salvation from other people? Do we get our entertainment and our distraction from other people? Do other people stand between us and God? This is, uh, it, it, there's a lot. There's a lot packed into both of these films. And it seems to be the same a lot in both cases, just handled in very different ways. But I think we're going to wrap there. In Bruges is available on DVD and Blu-ray, and it's rentable through a wide variety of digital services and platforms. The Banshees of Inisherin is currently in theaters. It's enjoying a very slow rollout. So if it's not in your town yet, uh, give it a week and see whether it's there. Keep refreshing your town until it turns up. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, 
finally, it's time to recommend a film or film-related item that complements this set of episodes. We're calling this Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it will put some interesting choices on your radar. Genevieve, you were the one that suggested uh, that we talk about the pairing that we were kicking around for this week that we did not actually uh, pick up. You want to set us up here? Sure. With with the caveat that I have have yet to see the new film that would have been in this in this pairing had, had we done it. But weeks, months ago, when the trailer for Weird, the new Weird Al Yankovic sort of biopic starring Daniel Radcliffe came out, I was like, this is it, guys. This is our chance to finally do a walk hard <laughs> pairing. Because because <laughs> uh-huh. like for the four plus years we've been doing this this podcast, I feel like every time a new music biopic comes out, it's like maybe we pair it with Walk Hard, which is a film that I think all of us admire to to different degrees and is certainly probably the the apex of uh, music biopic parody until perhaps maybe weird pop star yeah yeah which we did do on this podcast paired with spinal tap which is another peak of the of the form oh, um, so good but uh we opted not to do weird and walk hard for reasons that maybe i will uh let those who have seen it uh discuss <laughs> i mean i had a lot of fun with weird the al yankovic story but i'm i'm a long time weird al yankovic fan i mean i i literally stood in line to get an album by him signed uh, when i was 13 years old and uh, a lot a lot more <laughs> capable of being starstruck than i am today i i think if when I started doing professional interviews with uh, entertainers I admired, I botched it as badly as I botched my interaction with Weird Al Yankovic at age 13. Um, they would have drummed me out of the profession. So I'm just I'm I'm very familiar with his music. It it just, you know, kind of like lives in my blood. So the fact that this film is just a completely goofy retake on it with a sense of humor that's so familiar from, you know, UHF and and the Weird Al show and just like various dives into media comedy that he's done over the years. You know, pretty much guaranteed it that I would find it an amiable good time. I think the decision to cast Daniel Radcliffe as Weird Al, you know, somebody who doesn't really look a whole lot like him. But, you know, if you slap enough curly hair on Hawaiian shirt and, and big bushy mustache and glasses on somebody, they're going to look a lot like 80s Al. I think it was a really interesting decision. And I think there's just uh, a lot here that's, you know, maybe not uh, high key enough to to support an hour's worth of conversation. But I, I found this to be a, fair, a fairly fun movie. Uh, Scott, I'm given to understand that you, as usual, agree with me in ab- absolutely every aspect of my feeling <laughs> about a film. I do not. I do not agree. I, 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 um, I was a little more on the mixed side with this one. I think it really starts promisingly and, and then it gets sidetracked. Uh, once Madonna comes on board, I, I, I like... Evan Rachel Wood is as Madonna. I feel like that is like a, it's one of those things where you think it's a little twist of the plot and then it just takes it over and that's the movie. I like much more the sort of the origin story stuff, particularly the scene where um, he gets the inspiration for my baloney. <laughs> It's very, very um, funny. My Bologna, Scott. My Bologna, it's, uh, the, I know. The, the original Knack song is not uh, My Sharoni. God, sorry. I just used to call him a baloney. Uh, Oscar Mayer. It's the tyranny of Oscar Mayer. Um, but, like, <laughs> you know, and it brought me to, I think I've watched the the video of Weird Al playing My Bologna on 
accordion like a dozen times since i just can't stop watching it because it's so so amazing so i really like that i mean but the problem was it is you know i have complained about music biopics since walk hard where i've been i've watched them going saying haven't these people seen walk hard you can't do that it's all that stuff was parodied you can't just try to do that again and then i watch weird al and it's the weird al movie and it's like, okay, this is Walk Hard, but Walk Hard did this a whole lot better. And so that was kind of where I ended up landing on, on Weird. It's, it's. I think one of the better, best movies you can, best original movies you can find on the Roku channel. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, it's really just kind of a little bit, a little bit amiable, but not much more uh, for me. I will mostly point out that it's not terribly long. Uh, it is terribly silly and it's it's free it's and it's long. very easy. It's like an hour and forty some minutes. That is it's not like, terribly long. long. It is the, no cut it. Oh God, you could cut fifteen minutes out of this. I cut it right now, Natasha. I cut. I could cut fifteen all minutes. All right. Out of this. Well, <laughs> while you're off recutting weird the uh, Al Yankovic movie, so not, you haven't seen yeah. this movie yet. Uh, first off, are you are you a Weird Al fan at all? Like, does does this movie interest you in any way? It definitely interests me. I'm, I, I'd say because I'm more of a fan of post-Harry Potter Daniel Radcliffe, uh, but I am also uh, a Weird Al fan. I was aware of him growing up, and um, I'm also interested to see how the movie lives up to Walk Hard, which I'm also a fan of. Yeah, as far as the that sort of kicking around, you know, whether whether Walk Hard or Spinal Tap or Pop Star, any of a number of other movies is uh, the best faux music biopic. Like, do you have any any opinion on that, or are there any others that you would bring into the pantheon? Oh, I think the best parody of a musical biopic is probably Bohemian Rhapsody. It doesn't get much <laughs> much funnier than that. Vicious. I like him. Absolutely vicious. Well, it, it's funny because that I, I interviewed the director and uh, and Weird Al and Daniel Radcliffe about the movie and Bohemian Rhapsody is the one that they keep uh, referring to <laughs> in terms of like their, their touchstones. And now I kind of wonder if they meant that in a positive way or not. Because uh, I, I suspect I never saw Bohemian Rhapsody. I'm, I suspect that it's possible that they share your opinion of it and we're just being um circumspect i have seen bohemian rhapsody and can say that is exactly (laughs) (laughs) well that's it for this edition of the next picture show but we will be back next week genevieve can you tell us what's coming up for our next few episodes well, due to some issues with scheduling and release dates, we're going to take a break from our regular pairing schedule next week. Look for a special bonus episode in your feeds instead. Then we'll return on December 6th and 13th with our next pairing, inspired by the new Bones and All. Luca Guadagnino's newest both is and isn't like his well-received romance Call Me By Your Name. Once again, it's a book-to-film adaptation and a swoony, sunlit love story starring Timothy Chalamet as a young man experiencing the overwhelming emotion around what seems to be his first romance. But this time, it's also a grotesquely gory horror movie featuring multiple scenes of graphic cannibalism, something Call Me By Your Name pretty notably lacked. Taylor Russell stars as a young woman exploring her family ties after discovering her taste for human flesh, and Chalamet is another ghoul who helps her understand her hungers and what people like them expect of each other. They wind up on the road together in a love story that feels like a summer fling, apart from all the blood. That theme of young criminals in love and on the run, struggling with family ties and worrying over the law, reminded us a lot of Terrence Malick's equally swoony 1973 romance Badlands, starring young Martin Sheen and Sissy Spacek as the lovers who flee the site of a murder one of them committed, and take pleasure in each other and the world around them while they can. For now, we welcome your feedback on both In Bruges and Banshees of Inisherin, plus anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. Email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net, 
or leave us a voicemail at 773-234-9730. Before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Sanat, we haven't talked much about the many, many outlets that you uh, that you write for. Where would you most recommend uh, people look for your work? And can you point to anything in particular you'd like them to start with? Sure. Uh, well, as long as Twitter is around, you can find me on Twitter at, at Siddhanta Dlaka. Uh, you can find my work in a number of places, um, IGN, Vulture, Polygon, Joy Sauce. The list is getting quite long at this point, so I think I'll just keep it to Twitter and those few. Anything in particular? Uh, yes, I did just actually write a video essay on the films of Ryan Coogler that I actually started writing about four years ago. So I'm glad that's finally out. And uh, that you can find on the YouTube channel Cinefix. Genevieve, where can we find you? Uh, you can find me working pretty much exclusively behind the scenes these days at, at vulture.com and letting my Twitter account languish at Genevieve Kosky. Uh, and uh, yeah, you can find me over on Instagram posting pictures of my dogs. And yeah, that's about it. Scott, how about you? Okay. Um, well, you can find me on Mastodon. <laughs> 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 at, at Scott underscore Tobias at mstdn dot social, uh, but I think if you just if you just do a search on uh, Mastodon, you'll find me there. Uh, but really, I'm still on on whatever is left of Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias. My big venture is with our co-host Keith Phipps. That's the Reveal. Um, that's our newsletter. It's the Reveal dot com where we have uh, various features and essays and reviews. And you can also find my work in the New York Times, Vulture, Washington Post, The Ringer, The Guardian, and other fine publications. I should probably speak for Keith Phipps as well, who's, who isn't here. But again, he is my co-conspirator at The Reveal. And he is on Twitter at kphipps3000. You can find his work elsewhere at GQ, The Ringer, TV Guide, and other uh, fine publications. Tasha? Well, I'm still on Twitter, and uh, I'm going down with this ship because I'm very curious Master done. exactly Master done. what happens to the ship on the way down. Oh, totally, yes. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be lying on the board in the middle of the cold, cold sea when uh, Twitter sinks. <laughs> That's the same metaphor. It's and right. I'm totally not letting uh, uh, anybody on of it on with me, even though there's absolutely room for it. <laughs> Uh, I am the film and streaming editor over at Polygon.com, and you can find my writing and writing that I curate and edit there. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at nextpicturepod. You can get bonus content and discussion at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. As always, we appreciate your ratings and your reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. Thanks to Dan the Baked Jakes for his assistance in producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. <laughs> <laughs>